the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler show you what it takes to become a top 10% performer in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers co-hosted by myself, Dr. Kathy Greenberg, and Dr. Raleigh Nadler. We're your leadership development coaches, and we've helped thousands of leaders and executives perform in the top 10%. Today, I'm with Dr. Sean Acor, and we will be talking to you about the science of happiness. Sean is the winner of over a dozen distinguished teaching awards at Harvard University, where he delivered lectures on positive psychology in the most popular class at Harvard. His research and lectures on happiness and human potential have received attention in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Wall Street Journal, as well as the both NPR and CNN radio shows. When not at Harvard, Sean travels around the world giving talks on positive psychology to Fortune 500 corporations, financial institutions, schools, and nonprofit organizations. He's the CEO of Aspirant, a global positive psychology consulting firm which researches positive outliers. These are people who are, well, above average, and he helps to consult organizations on where human potential, success, and happiness intersect. You know that Relly and I really believe that leaders are the heartbeat of any organization, but most leaders will underestimate just how much influence they have over others, and, well, you know, as a result, they will tend to, well, underperform. But doing a few things differently can really improve your performance and your organization's. And what we try to teach in every one of our shows is something about developing leaders in your organization, what happy companies know about performance, and something about emotional intelligence and, in today's show, positive psychology strategies. In some of our programs, you'll hear about brain and neuroscience. You'll hear hear other things like generation and gender differences, something on work-life balance, strategies to manage yourself and others, and many tools and tips which we hope you'll apply every day. Before we bring Sean on, we'd like to tell you maybe just a little bit about some of the statistics on the science of happiness to help perhaps get you ready for Sean's discussion with us today. And usually, Relly's here with us to share some of his advice on emotional intelligence, but unfortunately, Relly is off today, so you'll have to deal with me. But essentially, leaders have about 50 to 70% influence over the climate of their team. And as you know, we like to say that emotions are contagious and that leaders are the emotional thermostat for their teams. As a leader moves up the corporate ladder, they have to increase their emotional intelligence to actually increase their performance. And we know that leaders in the top 10% will produce twice as much revenue as those below them when they are, in fact, emotionally intelligent. When coaching is added to training, a person's productivity is even enhanced by 88%, but with training alone is 22%. So you can see there's a big increase in using positive psychology, emotional intelligence, and coaching combined. And I'm sure when we talk to Sean later in the show, he'll have some more interesting information on that statistic to share with us. 
What we want you to really take away from our statistics on what leadership development is about is that you can increase profit by creating coaching networks inside your company in just one day. And studies show that happiness is tied to profit by more than 93%. So small, very tiny micro-initiatives can add up and create macro-impacts. If you're interested in more information on what you can learn from leadership development, you can contact both myself and Raleigh Nadler. You can contact me, Dr. Kathy Greenberg, at www.h2cleadership.com for happiness books, tools, speaking keynotes, and leadership and coaching services. And certainly, Dr. Raleigh Nadler at www.truenorthleadership.com for his emotional intelligence and free EI assessment tools, books, speaking keynotes, leadership, and coaching boot camps. So today's guest is Dr. Sean Acor, and as I said, he's the winner of dozens of distinguished teaching awards at Harvard University. He's also a graduate from Harvard, and he earned a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School in Christian and Buddhist ethics. In 2006, Sean served as head teaching fellow with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar of Positive Psychology, a class that enrolled one out of every seven Harvard undergraduates. And for seven years, Sean served as an officer of Harvard, living in Harvard Yard and counseling students through the stresses of their first year. He now lives in Harvard's Kirkland House as the resident psychology tutor, and Sean continues to conduct original psychology research on human potential, happiness, and organizational achievement. Sean speaks to diverse audiences, including Wall Street analysts, Harvard Law students, business leaders around the globe, elite high school students, wealth managers, doctors, and parents to help close the gap between the advances made in positive psychology research and our everyday lives. Based on his research and 12 years of experience at Harvard, Sean clearly and humorously describes to organizations how to increase happiness and meaning, raise success rates and profitability, and create positive transformations that ripple into more successful cultures. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're delighted, and I cannot believe we've caught you between trips here, so we're very happy to have you for this time. You know, um, we love to ask all of our guests one basic question before we get into your subject matter, and that is, who have been the most influential people, thinkers, or just leaders in your life, and how have they shaped your thinking about what you do in leadership and coaching? Oh, that's a tough question. Two people jumped to my mind when you mentioned that. Um, The first is, uh, as you mentioned uh, in your description of me, I went to uh, Harvard Divinity School after graduating from the college, and part of what I was looking at is I really wanted to study the way in which our vision of the world, the lens through which we view the world, shapes how we act. Um, so I looked at ethics, and I looked at it um, through uh, Christian ethics and through Buddhist ethics to see how those differences come out. And uh, one of those th- thinkers and leaders to me that uh, influenced me ever since I was a, a young boy was um, C.S. Lewis, who t- could take, uh, he was an Oxford don um, studying English and could take uh, complex theological ideas and ideas about his beliefs and translate them into stories and ideas into simple language that could bridge the gap between academia and um, 
the rest of the world that doesn't necessarily live in uh, the ivory tower. And the reason I found that so powerful is that while I was at the Divinity School and then when I moved over to study positive psychology, which was asking the same questions about how we view the world and how that shapes our activities, how it shapes our work and our leadership, um, what I realized is that there is this huge gap between what we had been learning and studying and researching in academia and what people were understanding. And so I wanted to be one of those bridges, um, not necessarily in the theological realm, but in uh, the realm of bringing science to businesses and to leaders who are attempting to create positive change and forward progress. Um, so I'd say C.S. Lewis was one of those models for me. And then the other person was somebody who, who you already mentioned, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, who was the one who brought positive psychology to my attention in the first place and brought positive psychology to Harvard. And in doing so, what he helped me to do was to make that gap, uh, that jump between what I've been studying at Divinity School and broadening that sphere to being able to research not just how we look at the world through uh, a religious lens, but how our everyday choices, our habits, our thought patterns dramatically affect how um, successful we are in our lives, and our jobs, and how much happiness we're able to create along the way. Well, it sounds like your philosophies are very much in sync with the ideas around delivering on your sense of purpose and helping the leaders in business, as well as those who've come from science, kind of form a bridge across that sense of purpose domain. Does that, does that sound like it fits for you? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I say in my talks is that uh, Dr. Talbin Shahar told me that the average academic journal article is read by seven people, which is such a depressing statistic because research scientists can put in a ton of time into these articles, and it's the same six or seven people that are reading it every time. And that means that we have these great scientific discoveries that are not getting across to the people that could use them most, which are these leaders of companies, uh, uh, leaders uh, in our communities that could really take these and be able to create authentic changes in their life. And we've definitely been able to see how people, when they can make these sort of changes and grapple with the core of uh, who they are and what matters to them most, that suddenly we see uh, jumps in all of the other metrics, um, productivity, profitability, and sustainability over time. So absolutely, that's a great synthesis. Well, it's so funny that you'd say the average uh, seven, I guess, uh, people read a research paper. And it's amazing because if you think of the names of people that you and I would hear in the circles where we are both academics and, um, if you will, writers and, and, if you will, professors of the science of happiness, it is the same seven people almost over and over again. You hear the name Sonia Lubomirsky, who has written The How of Happiness. You hear Barbara Fredrickson, who is at Chapel Hill, who's written Positivity. You hear Dan Gilbert, um, who worked on the CNN program I did with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. You hear your name and Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, and you hear almost the same seven or eight names over and over again in the industry. It's amazing how you'd think that by now we've We've grown and connected to more business leaders, so hopefully that's what we'll be doing during this show. Absolutely. Well, what inspired you to pursue this science of happiness and this idea of positive psychology? Well, it started not in the business sphere. It started um, with me. Uh, I had been at Harvard for several years. I've been there as an undergraduate, then as a graduate student, and um, 
been teaching uh, as a teaching fellow there for several years, and I've been living in residence with these Harvard students, and over the past 12 years, living in that environment and seeing these students, they're picked because they have extremely high levels of potential, and they have all these things that are going for them, and all these opportunities that suddenly open up to them as soon as they get into Harvard. I would assume, and would have assumed before coming in, that of course all of these students would achieve high potentials, and of course they would all be happy. Um, when you walk around campus, there's these absolutely beautiful buildings that look like something out of Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter. And when I, you see this, you assume that they'd all be happy. But as I watch them over time, I realize that, first of all, that there is a large uh, portion of these students that uh, were feeling high levels of depression and stress and feeling like that there was so much competition there, it was impossible to be happy in that environment. And as a result of that, their performance was decreasing. So then I start asking the question, what causes somebody to rise to the top at Harvard while others stay average or start to underperform due to stress and due to depression? And so it was a question I was just asking about these Harvard students, but it turns out that the answers that we started to glean from this research were magnified once we got out into the business world. And after I started studying these students and studying what causes somebody to become a positive outlier, somebody who rises up above average to perform at extremely high levels. Those same principles held true in the business world. It held true in high schools. It held true in the military. It held true in hospitals and law firms. And so I think I came in through sort of the back door, just trying to figure out what causes some people to become these positive outliers. And as a result of that, we found something that causes us to learn how we cannot move people just up to the average, but to move the entire average up through these several principles and the research of positive psychology. Well, Sean, I'm going to ask you to pause on that thought, and when we come back from this break, I'd like you to describe what an outlier is. So we're going to take a quick break. This is Leadership Development News, so come right back. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and and influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Let Kathy Greenberg teach you and your team how to harness the power of happiness to generate even greater success and satisfaction at work. Did you know by applying coaching and the new science of happiness, you can improve your return on people anywhere from 50 to 350%. At H2C, we believe in both a return on people, that's ROP, as much as return on investment, or ROI. 
Dr. Greenberg, co-author of What Happy Companies Know and What Happy Women Know, is the leading global expert on coaching combined with the new science of happiness and originator of the Happiness Equals Profits business formula. Kathy's company, H2C, Happy Companies, Healthy People, provides practical training for individuals and entire companies to maximize their potential in as little as one day. Kathy herself is available for one-to-one executive coaching, group training, and as an electrifying conference speaker. Catch her at the Governor's Conference for Women nationally and as spokesperson for Cancer Treatment Centers of America throughout 2009 for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results. To learn more about adding Kathy and Happy Company's healthy people to your team, visit Kathy at h2cleadership.com. That's h2cleadership.com. Homeowners, real estate investors, bankers, listen up and tune in to Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight, the show that breaks it all down and gives it to you straight. Are you at risk of foreclosure? Interested in buying a foreclosed property? Mark Bull has the answers to the questions you might forget to ask. Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight broadcast live on the Voice America Business Channel, Monday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific. You can't afford not to tune in. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. We're speaking with Sean Acor, who is going to talk to us a little bit more about the science of happiness. And, Sean, when we went to break, we were talking about how you chose to pursue the science of happiness, and you started talking about outliers. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about what an outlier is, how you come up with this idea, and now how you're applying it as part of the science of happiness? That's a great question. I think many of your audience... uh, members will be familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, which describes what it is that causes somebody to perform extremely well in a specific domain, whether that means that they become a professional athlete or they become a billionaire in their business practices or they become an extraordinary musician due to years and years of practice and their genes coming together to make them extraordinary at something. For me, the way I describe an outlier is that in science, uh, Oftentimes we look for what the average or the trend is. So if we ask a simple question like, how, how fast can a child learn how to read? Science takes that question and then flips it and says, well, we can answer the question of how fast the average child reads. And so it looks at a whole bunch of children, studies them, finds out how long it takes the average child to read. And then we learn that information and teach uh, classrooms with that in mind, saying that, well, this is how fast a child can read. Well, we forget about that once we come up with that statistic or that average. What we're doing is we're creating this cult of the average, which is, as a society, we care and science cares very much about what's going on with the average trend, but forgets that there are many 
of these individuals that are not on those areas. And we obviously in psychology study people that fall below average or below a trend for some uh, given reason. For example, depression. A psychologist gets very excited if somebody falls below average because that means that they have depression or disorder, or maybe both. And then scientists and psychologists get very excited about studying them because maybe we can find some way of just moving them back up to average again. What I study are, are positive outliers, people that are above the average or above the curve um, for a specific dimension. It doesn't have to just be happiness. It could be energy, sales, productivity, charisma, compassion, resiliency. What we look for is, why is it that that individual is so high above the curve? What are they doing? And if we study them enough, maybe we can glean information, ideas, and principles, and strategies that we could then employ for everyone so that we can move people not just up to average again, which is what most psychology does, but move everyone's potential up towards the, the status of being one of these positive outliers. This idea is the same thing that we do in business schools, for example, when you study case studies. When you look at a case study for, uh, for how a company works, most of the time we don't study just an average company or study ones that are completely underperforming. We also include case studies of companies that are thriving in the midst of challenge or that have done extremely well. You might look at a Google or an Apple. The same thing we want to do at the individual level is that we want to study some of these business leaders, these students, these parents, these UN ambassadors to find out what it is that they're doing that causes them to be so successful so that we can learn how to raise our own productivity. It's amazing. As you're speaking to me, so much of what you're saying um, is such a natural thought in terms of how we raise children or how we look for business partners, but we actually don't apply a lot of the logic for positive outliers in our work on an everyday basis. And, in fact, we start to compartmentalize people into those we would choose to aspire to be like and those we would choose not to. So it's amazing to me that, that um, what you're saying is so true, but we don't, we don't recognize it as such. So tell me a little bit about how, how does happiness influence people and what has been your experience with this to date? It's such an interesting question because I was giving a talk one time on Wall Street and uh, an analyst stood up in the back of the room midway through the talk and said, uh, Sean, I know, I know you're from Harvard and everything, but isn't this a huge waste of time? Isn't positive psychology just common sense? And there's something really to what that analyst was saying, of course. He was saying that we've heard a lot of these ideas before. This is how parents want to teach their children. This is how we want to pick our business partners. We've heard a lot of these ideas about how happiness can cause us to be more successful ever since ancient Greek philosophers and through all the religious traditions, all the way up to modern-day uh, motivational speakers. And the interesting part was after the talk, somebody came up to me and said, uh, Sean, do you remember that analyst that stood up in the back of the room? And I said, yeah, yes, I remember. And he said, that analyst is the most unhappy person we have here. And it was such a poignant moment for me because it made me realize that you know, here's somebody who's rightly identifying that a lot of these ideas are common sense. Uh, no one's surprised that seeing the world and looking for things to be grateful for is, uh, makes you happy, for example. Mm -hmm. And no one's really surprised that you work longer on tasks which you feel positive about. But the interesting thing is that common sense doesn't translate into common action. So what we're finding is here's a group of individuals that may know this information but aren't putting it into practice. 
So part of the, the goal and role I see for positive psychologists and uh, individuals that are looking at the sphere is finding ways to make these positive changes occur for people who want them to happen. I think this happens everywhere. Uh, you know, I, every, every January I write down basically the same New Year's resolutions that I want to do. And by the end of January, those same resolutions, even though I might really want them, have sort of fizzled off or that I haven't been able to be successful and I give up until the next January. So part of what we study is how do we make that, how do we make positive changes more likely to happen and how do we sustain those changes and how do we make that common sense common at the business level? You know, I am agreeing with you. I'm sitting here shaking my head. Of course, you can't see that, nor can our audience. But it's interesting to me because I just had a very similar experience where I was a speaker at a very large um, company who I will uh, not mention on the air because they are um, a global company. And um, they uh, were very curious about why this had not been something that had been brought to their attention earlier in their career. So like your analyst who said, isn't this common sense? It was more like, and I was speaking on the podium with a Harvard professor who was doing a case study on ambiguous decision-making. And it was fascinating to me um, that that this person got it, understood it. Um, I didn't have the same, you know, afterthought from one of the members in the group saying, oh, yes, that happens to be one of the most unhappy people in our group. But it was one of those things where the, the group as a whole said, you know, this is, this is stuff we can transfer very easily to other people by our own climate that we create as an executive, as a leader in our own, if you will, environment. So the climate that we create of happiness to influence people around us is so important. And it's such a small thing to do that has such a macro impact, as we were saying before, um, it's just wonderful to hear you say the same thing and to also get the same kinds of questions asked of you. It makes you feel a little bit more normal. Um, so let me ask you, what is a good academic definition and or explanation of happiness or the science of happiness? How do you, how do you propose that when you're speaking to a non-academic group? Well, I actually shy away from defining happiness for uh, for an important reason. Um, I, I know s- several academics do try and create a definition of happiness, and that helps us study um, study its effects upon people. So some individuals look at happiness as a mixture of you know pleasure and meaning and enjoyment of these different activities that we have in our lives. And there's lots of different ways that we do that. The reason I shy away from it is that. I work with a lot of uh, uh, global groups, uh, global companies, like you were just mentioning, the the global organization that you were working with. And what I'm finding is that as I talk to these different individuals and different countries, I I find that our definitions of what creates or what is happiness is different for almost every single individual, that some people describe it more as joy, some people describe it as contentment, some people describe happiness as uh, something lasting or something as short-term as the, the happiness they feel after eating a chocolate bar. Even though we have different definitions of happiness, if you then have somebody, say, on a scale of 1 to 10, rank their happiness currently in the present moment, 10 being the happiest you could possibly be and 1 being the, the least happy you could possibly be. And you could use decimal points if you're working with a financial group or a group that really likes math. And what we find is that even though there's not a central core definition, everyone has a subjective understanding of their own happiness. They can say, 
you know, I feel like an 8 or an 8.5 right now, or I feel like a 3.2. The interesting thing about happiness is that our perception of our own happiness is 100% accurate. I can't say that to that person, no, you're, if you think you're an 8, I actually know you're a 3. Um, everyone knows that you're a 3. I can't do that because happiness is a self, it's, it's a, uh, a self-described activity in the same way that pain is. When you go into the hospital, um, we don't have a pain meter that doctors can hook you up to. The doctors have to ask you, does your broken arm feel like a 2 or like a 10 on the scale? And then they prescribe medication based upon that. That's what we do in these companies is we diagnose where people are based upon where they believe that they are in terms of their own happiness levels. And why I shy away from defining happiness itself, what I don't shy away from is describing uh, rational optimism or positivity, which is what I think is at the core of the research that I talk about in terms of productivity and performance. And I think that they mean very similar things. But to me, rational optimism is taking a realistic assessment of the present, not sugarcoating the present, not trying to see the world through rose-colored glasses, but taking a realistic assessment of where you are with a belief and a hope that there is progress or change that can be made at both the individual level and at the group level. So what that means is that when we make decisions about business decisions or decisions about who we should be business partners with or when we think about what habits we're doing or how the world is around us, that we take realistic assessments but also that we remain optimistic and hopeful towards change in the future. And we find that when somebody is able to do that, when somebody can see the world through the lens of optimism, positivity, even happiness, depending on how you describe it, that those have all of the significant effects that you're describing at the beginning of the show about uh, performance changes, productivity changes, energy, resilience, changes in uh, burnout, changes in uh, depression. Uh, when you're in a positive uh, state of mind, people will perceive you to be not only more charismatic, but also more attractive as well. So it, it ripples into every domain of the business world. That is um, very beautifully said. I, I love that idea of rational optimism, and I think positivity is such a strong force, and I agree with you. You know, happiness is such a hard thing to define, and often, um, I'm sure as you do when I'm talking to an audience about um, positive psychology and the science of happiness, I ask them, you know, how do you define happiness? And uh, a couple of the definitions we'll get are things like peacefulness or satisfaction, um, in addition to the list that you provided. So it's fascinating to me that even though we have different definitions of happiness, we all understand that there are relative definitions that meet our needs, and we find the words that seem to describe, as you said, our own image of what happiness is. So before I ask you another critical question on the science of happiness. We're going to go to another break. So don't go away. Come right back. This is Leadership Development News. The bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. 
seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Let Kathy Greenberg teach you and your team how to harness the power of happiness to generate even greater success and satisfaction at work. Did you know by applying coaching and the new science of happiness, you can improve your return on people anywhere from 50 to 350%. At H2C, we believe in both a return on people, that's ROP, as much as return on investment, or ROI. Dr. Greenberg, co-author of What Happy Companies Know and What Happy Women Know, is the leading global expert on coaching combined with the new science of happiness and originator of the Happiness Equals Profits business formula. Kathy's company, H2C, Happy Companies, Healthy People, provides practical training for individuals and entire companies to maximize their potential in as little as one day. Kathy herself is available for one-to-one executive coaching, group training, and as an electrifying conference speaker. Catch her at the Governor's Conference for Women Nationally and as spokesperson for Cancer Treatment Centers of America throughout 2009 for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results. To learn more about adding Kathy and Happy Company's healthy people to your team, visit Kathy at h2cleadership.com. That's h2cleadership.com. Adding fractions is nothing. For real? Look, these are denominators. You multiply this one so that it's the same as that, then you add them up. Hey, that's easy. Charles Bennett dreamed of returning to the old neighborhood as a teacher. But without money for college, only half of his dream came true. He's back in the old neighborhood. Well, enough math. I got to deliver these sandwiches. Please support the United Negro College Fund. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. A message from the UNCF and the Ad Council. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers. We're having a delightful conversation with Sean Acor, who, as you may know, is a specialist on the science of happiness. So, Sean, we were just talking about rational optimism and positivity, and I want to um, broaden our conversation a little bit to talk about experiences. How, how do our experiences affect our overall levels of happiness and behavior? I think that our happiness is very much uh, affected by the experiences that happen to us, but also the experiences that we allow ourselves to have and how we view them. Because it's interesting to note that 
uh, and all the studies that have come out about how income, for example, doesn't necessarily automatically correlate with happiness, that higher levels of income doesn't make you a happier person um, inherently. What we're finding is that, just like I found at Harvard, I assumed that, you know, when I came in, I mistakenly assumed that if you're at Harvard, you must be thrilled to be at Harvard and must be happy every day to wake up and be within that environment. And there absolutely were some students that were feeling that, that did, did feel that happiness almost every day or even in the midst of stress that they were enjoying it. But other people saw the exact same experience of being in that environment as something that was soul-draining or stressful or so challenging to the point that they wanted to go somewhere else or that they were unhappy. And what we're finding is that the same experiences can be experienced by uh, different people. And based upon the lens through which we view it, it shapes our experience of that and how that experience shapes us. So, for example, if somebody's in a car accident and uh, they break their arm, one person could be in the car and they could walk away from that car accident and say, I'm having the worst day I've ever had. I totaled my car this morning. I broke my arm. I'm afraid I never want to get into a car again. Somebody else who walked away from the same car accident who also broke their arm could say, I was involved in a horrific car accident today, and I could have died, and I walked away with just a scratch. I only broke my arm. I feel like I could have died. I have a whole new lease on life. I want to spend more time with my family. I want to invest more in my work. I want to do all the things on my bucket list that I've always wanted to do. The remarkable thing is the exact same experience caused, in one hand, paralysis, and on the other hand, activation. And the question is, how do we get ourselves to, you know, we can't always change what happens to us. We can't change um, the fact that the stock market goes down on a given day. We can't change the fact that, you know, that there are car accidents that occur or that there are bad things and good things that happen to us. What we do have within our power is the ability to change how we allow those experiences to affect us. But we absolutely know that that's the difficult part to do. Um, for example, I work a lot with uh, uh, some of the World Banks, and in the midst of uh, the economic collapse that has just occurred over the past 12 to 20 months, that a lot of these bankers, when I would come in and, and traders, when I would be working with them, I would assume in the midst of all this stress and challenge that they'd be working extra hard, that they would feel like that they needed to work and put in all this time in order to get past this challenge. And what I saw was the actual opposite, that many of these traders and bankers were uh, just sitting there, that they were inactive. They felt like that their behavior didn't matter anymore. And that's because their experiences that they had had in the past, over the past couple months, was that there are things that are outside of their control that were negative. And as they had a series of these negative experiences over and over again, they began to believe, their brains began to give in to the idea that their behavior had no, no meaning. And as a result of that, once they're in domains where their behavior very much did matter, such as how hard they're working on a project or how much they're connecting to people at work and creating that sort of social support or how they're training people within their company. What we find is that they st it started to bleed over. Those experiences started to teach the people that they were helpless. It's what we call in positive psychology learned helplessness. And you mentioned Martin Seligman before and this idea. This was one of his concepts when he was studying, uh, when he was studying dogs. And he would look at... You know, if you can train a dog or an animal to think that there are negative consequences that will occur outside of their control, they'll stop acting completely. They'll sit there almost paralyzed. And the same thing is occurring for these individuals. So I think the goal of positive psychology and the goal of this work 
and the goal for business leaders is to find a way to re-engage and to uh, reactivate individuals' belief that their behavior does matter. And if we can do that by shaping the way that we look at our experiences or shaping the experiences we have by controlling our environment, turning off CNBC if we need to stop looking at stock tickers or if we need to surround ourselves with people that are positive for a little bit, anything we can do to increase our resiliency in the moment and and our belief that our behavior matters, if we can do that, those experiences dramatically affect our success. So I can't help but ask you this question when you're working with these kinds of individuals um, that you've just described. What do you do to help them reactivate? What question might you ask someone who is, in fact, in this learned helplessness to awaken them to the possibility that they have choice? That's a great question. What What we do normally, one of the activities that we have people do is based upon some research that was done upon locus of control. Locus just means the center of control and whether not you believe that control in your life exists outside of you, which would be external control, or whether that control, that locus of control is internal, that your behavior very much matters and controls the consequences that happen. So what we do for some of these senior uh, uh, executives at these companies that have received a series of negative uh, uh, results over and over again, which you know, I think that everyone that's in this economy, for the most part, has been reeling from a series of negative events that are outside of their control. What we have them do in teams or individually on a sheet of paper is we have them to split up what are the different things that are causing them stress currently and to put them in a category of this is something that I can control and these are things that I can't control. And sometimes they have to break up some of the stresses to uh, make it clear which part is within their control, um, such as... Uh, you know, whether or not they're keeping uh, their employees later um, on a given night or whether or not they are um, surrounding themselves with people that are negative and putting things in the external categories such as the stock market fluctuations, which are outside of their control. Then once we have them recognize what is within their control and what is outside of their control, which if you're familiar with the serenity prayer from Alcoholics Anonymous, it's the same type of principle. It's this idea of... Uh, asking for the wisdom to know the difference between what is within our control and what's outside of our control. And once you realize what's in your control, then you take small little steps. And what I have people do is something um, I call the Zorro Circle. The Zorro Circle is, um, in the movie uh, uh, that came out about Zorro, they had uh, this character who who became Zorro who was so frustrated at um, uh, all these negative things that had happened to him, and he wanted revenge, but he couldn't do it. Um, he didn't have the discipline and the sword skills to be able to uh, get that revenge that he wanted, so he just turned towards drinking in despair until the swordmaster came in and had him begin to fight within a small circle, a small one-by-one-foot radius. And then once you could control that one circle and knew that you had uh, realized your behavior mattered within that circle then you slowly start to expand that circle in concentric circles so that you slowly expand your sphere of influence. And it happens the more that we learn that our behavior matters. So what we do with these individuals, these executives that have been experiencing this, what we have them do is focus down into the smallest sphere that they know that their behavior will cause the effect that they want, that they know that they can finish this project on time and it can be a quality project and it won't solve the rest of their, their problems. But what it does is once they are successful at that one task, their brains learn that my behavior does matter and they're willing to take a little bit larger step next time and they expand that circle and expand that circle. And just like Zoro in the movie who 
started in that one foot by one foot um, circle, that one foot radius circle. That uh, by the end of the movie, he's you know jumping off the of chandeliers and fighting twenty men at a time. In the same way that somebody who takes the time to uh, make sure that their brain is learning on a daily basis, that their behavior very much does matter. It breaks them of their learned helplessness and causes them to learn optimism, which is the belief that your behavior will cause a positive outcome. And as a result of that, you get what we call in positive psychology this cascade effect, which is once you make one positive change, you're more likely to make more positive changes. And I see that in my own life. Uh, if I start exercising, I'll suddenly start eating healthier immediately too because I realize, hey, if I take the time and energy to exercise and I'm seeing some benefits in terms of my body, maybe my eating patterns do matter. But when I'm learning helplessness, if I'm not exercising or don't think that anything seems to matter, I'll suddenly not exercise because that doesn't seem to matter. And I won't eat healthy because I won't realize how important my behavior actually is. So it's fascinating to me. You know, I think it was um, Diener who said that what we focus on becomes our reality. So we can actually, by what you've just described, change our own personal reality using the science of happiness as you just described it. Is, is that accurate? That's absolutely true, and I think that our brains, our brains are limited. We're, our brains are like single processors. We only have a finite amount of resources that we can use to experience the world, so our brain has to choose, and our brain can choose to focus its energy and bandwidth on things that are causing us to be stressed and things that are causing us to feel negative and things that are outside of our control, or we can use all that brain power and energy to focus on things that actually we can control and that if we make changes can dramatically increase our success, our profit levels, our productivity, and cause us to be more successful in a, a, a variety of different domains. Well, you just on, on that note touched on one of my hot buttons, of course, which is my motto, happiness equals profit, you know, um, and, and certainly that's where I think we have uh, a lot of, um, of symmetry and alignment in our thinking. So before I get into my next question, we have to go to another break. But uh, I'm sure our listeners are just totally embracing all of this wonderful discussion on how we can actually take small actions to attain very large goals. So we'll be right back with Leadership Development News, and we're talking to Dr. Sean Acor. So come right back. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Let Kathy Greenberg teach you and your team how to harness the power of happiness to generate even greater success and satisfaction at work. 
Did you know by applying coaching and the new science of happiness, you can improve your return on people anywhere from 50 to 350%. At H2C, we believe in both a return on people, that's ROP, as much as return on investment, or ROI. Dr. Greenberg, co-author of What Happy Companies Know and What Happy Women Know, is the leading global expert on coaching combined with the new science of happiness and originator of the Happiness Equals Profits business formula. Kathy's company, H2C, Happy Companies, Healthy People, provides practical training for individuals and entire companies to maximize their potential in as little as one day. Kathy herself is available for one-to-one executive coaching, group training, and as an electrifying conference speaker. Catch her at the Governor's Conference for Women Nationally and as spokesperson for Cancer Treatment Centers of America throughout 2009 for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results. To learn more about adding Kathy and Happy Company's healthy people to your team, visit Kathy at h2cleadership.com. That's h2cleadership.com. Dad, let's sing that bedtime song. Rockabye baby by Newton's treetop. His first law of motion makes sure you won't stop. The same rules of physics apply to a ball. While gravity is a force that makes things fall. By the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in math and science. But it's never too early to set your daughter's future in motion. For some simple ideas, go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Riley Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We're talking about the Science of Happiness with Sean Acor. Sean, tell us a little bit about um, what do you think are the major causes of unhappiness and stress? Well, the interesting thing is that over the past couple of decades, we've seen all of the measures of uh, development being increasing, uh, increasing worldwide. We see this in terms of building infrastructure and education and advances in science and the invention of the Internet and the interesting part is that despite all those advances, we're seeing uh, the flip occur in terms of our happiness and well-being. Almost all of our measures of happiness and depression and stress are going in the opposite direction. It's what sociologists call a progress paradox, which is where every uh, measure of development is increasing, yet every measure of well-being is going in the opposite direction. When I ask business leaders about why they think that's occurring, the most common answer I get is that they feel like, that all these advances have made it easier and easier for us to do more and more work. And as a result of that, people are working longer hours. Even their, their leisure time is turning into work with Blackberries and with uh, um, uh, their laptops. Um, it, it's what uh, is called now leisure, which is a, a blend of work and leisure together. The problem with that is that without those clear lines of delineation, with those longer work hours, and without that relaxation that occurs, what we're finding is that our brains are burning out. 
that our brains are so scattered in terms of our attention. And what we've seen is that if an individual can focus their attention on a single task at a time, their brain becomes happier. But what we see in business all the time is that there's a continued trend towards multitasking, which is this belief that our brains can do multiple things at once, talk on the phone while driving a car at the same time, or check email while trying to listen to a client. And what we're finding is when you do activities like that, not only is your IQ decreasing on the task that you're doing by up to 10 points, which is remarkable, but what we're also finding is that it dramatically increases your stress on the whole and makes you less successful at both of those tasks because our brains are, our conscious brains are actually incapable of that type of multitasking. All we're doing is bouncing back and forth between these two things and decreasing our happiness. So if we need to multitask as a society, we need to multitask one at a time, do multiple tasks one at a time. And I think that that could be one of the ways in which we can get individuals to be able to do the work that they need to faster, more efficiently, and happier without all the stress on the backside of it. That's the most common answer we get. But we also get the, the fragmentation of society and our businesses where it's easier and easier for us to work independently. We can work from home. We can do emails instead of actually talking face-to-face with one another. And I think that that's one of the, the saddest parts that I've seen in uh, not only corporate America but worldwide is that we're finding that people are not feeling social support at work. And the reason why that's so significant is social support, the belief that you can rely on people around you and that you feel connected to them, is the greatest single predictor of success for a company during periods of challenge and stress. Could you say that again? I think that's so important. Absolutely. I think, I think it's important, too, because I see the opposite. I saw the opposite at Harvard sometimes, that these are absolutely brilliant students who, in the midst of stress of, of tests and problems that they had to do, they decided to stop spending time with friends and stop spending time with family and stop doing extracurricular activities so they could focus on the task. And when they did that, they did worse of the task and were less happy. And the reason is social support of all the metrics I use to study all these Fortune 500 companies and these schools, the greatest single predictor of how successful an individual and a company will be during a time of challenge and stress is social support. So the fact that even intelligent people in the midst of challenge and stress do something as unintelligent as divesting from that predictor by not saying hello to people in the hallways, not spending time with family and friends, mm-hmm. um, that's dramatically affecting our success rate. Amazing. It's just amazing because, you know, I spend so many time with executives as you do, and they're always perplexed by this need for millennials and this younger generation that they don't really relate to very well using texting I had a, an executive at NASA who was just complaining to me in a very positive way, I might say, that he had two gentlemen in cubicles next to each other who could have easily just had a face-to-face who were texting each other, and he was having a conversation with one of them, and he was totally confused by the this, this um, multiple tasking going on, but to the point where they were next to each other, where they could all three be having a conversation, you know, watching the texting going on was just confusing. <laughs> So I'm sure you've seen this quite a bit. Yes. Now, do you have some examples of surprising lessons, as I've just described, that you've learned about happiness in your teaching or your travels? Um, I, I think that, well, I think one of those is one you just mentioned, which is uh, the, I, I thought that if I worked really hard and became smarter, then I'd be successful and then I'd be happy. 
And so I, I found that that formula, that calculus was in my brain, so ingrained in me from almost from birth that if I worked hard, I'd be intelligent, then I'd be successful, then I'd be happy. And the remarkable thing is all this research we've been doing over the past 10 to 15 years and all the work we're doing now with neuroimaging in the brain, we're starting to realize that that's not the way that our brains work at all. In fact, our brains work in the flip order, that we are much more successful when we're positive and happy before and during doing the task instead of waiting to be happy afterwards. So in other words, happiness and positivity is a precursor to success, not just the result of that. When I talk to business leaders, I think that that's one of the, the largest and most surprising things I've found is, that, is the assumption that if they're just a little bit more successful, if they make just a little bit more money, get the bonus they want, complete the project, then they'll be happy. What we find is that's definitely not the case. There's very successful people that are unhappy, and we know that as soon as we're successful, we push out that goal a little bit further. But what we're finding is that people who can find a way to become positive, to inject positivity into their day, whether it's spending time with coworkers, whether it's creating a positive habit, whether it's doing exercise or meditation or trying to think of three things that they're grateful for every day, that those people actually train their brains to be more successful and that they achieve more in the long run than individuals that wait for happiness to occur afterwards. I just wish I did that on a daily basis. I find myself sometimes waking up in the morning and saying, I have so many things on my plate today. Once I get all those done, once it's 8 o'clock tonight, right. then I'll be happy. And it's amazing how even when we've accomplished our goals, we'll often focus on the one thing that we didn't get done. You know, And it's like, hey, let's think about all the things we did get done and celebrate before we move on. And, uh, and often we don't do that. Now, what are some of the best ways people can think about managing their own happiness in the last couple of minutes we have here? I would have people try and be scientists for themselves. Think about one thing that they like to do that they think would cause an impact upon their own individual happiness. And if they need suggestions for that, they can Google positive psychology um, um, or uh, think about things that have been successful for them in the past, like if they exercised a little bit or if they wrote in a journal when they were back in college or if they um, wrote a, a letter to a friend every day, a one- to two-sentence email or letter that was complimentary or thanksgiving or praise. Um, try that out for 21 days straight and see if it has an effect upon you and see if it causes you to actually become happier and see if it has an effect upon your work levels. Are you more productive? Do you have more energy at work? And if you do, try and make that, that, that habit that you've been creating over the past 21 days to continue past 21 days or try and add in something else. And what we found is based upon all this research is that absolutely will happen. No matter what you pick, there's some things that can help you more, such as the things we were just describing, meditation, gratitude, journaling, exercise, random acts of kindness. All of those have a significant effect, but just doing something that you feel like has a positive effect upon you and seeing that your behavior matters teaches you that your behavior does matter, and you start to make more and more positive changes. As a result of that, you create a ripple effect, causing people around you to be more positive and allowing them to achieve more of their potential and be more productive as well. Well, you have been amazing, and, and thank you for injecting happiness into our day and sharing your insights on the subject of happiness. We look forward to hearing more about you and your work in the future, and I want to make sure that everybody can get in touch with you. I believe it's at www.seanacor.com. Is that correct? That's correct, or you can just Google Sean and positive psychology. And you go S-H-A-W-N. That's correct. So say that again for us, Sean. 
Uh, it's S-H-A-W-N. You can Google Sean and Positive Psychology, or you can go to, the, uh, to YouTube, and there's a couple of clips that will describe some of these ways in which people can become um, more successful, more positive in, a daily, in their daily lives. Oh, fabulous. Well, thank you again. And uh, I cannot uh, tell you how wonderful this experience has been for me and learning more about the science of happiness. So thank you. And we want to make sure all of our listeners know that once you've listened to this, you can also download it as an MP3. So we hope you've enjoyed the show and join us again for Leadership Development News. You've been listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you're leaving us today with some great ideas and inspiration from today's top leaders. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel.